You're listening to a live recorded teaching from the Sunday Gathering at the Heights Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope that this teaching is an encouragement to you. To find out more about the Heights Church, visit theheightsdenver.com. Uh, well, very good morning to you. Excited to dive into God's Word. I'll, say, I'll start out with this. I never did think I would be relieved uh, to teach on marriage and a little bit on divorce today, but here we are after last week. Um, and uh, genuinely really excited uh, to dive into God's Word. I think the Lord has a lot of fruit uh, He wants to bear in your lives through uh, working our way through this passage of the Bible uh, today. Uh, the comedian Chris Rock once famously said this, There are only two choices you have in life. You can either be married and bored or single and lonely. Ain't no happiness nowhere. You guys feel that? Yeah, you feel that? You're like, okay, some of you are married and you're like, I feel the bored thing. You're like, man, it's like I got into this and maybe the first few months were exciting, but then we settled into life together, got a little boring. We had kids, got a little bit more boring. We just kind of roll home at about 6.30 every night, get the kids in bed, hang out a little bit, get up, rinse, repeat the next day, boring, right? And those of you who are single, my single friends here, uh, I know this from talking to so many of you. You're like, man, marriage might be boring, but, uh, you know, singleness is lonely. And Chris Rock has come to us, he's going, there's only two choices. Nobody can be happy. These are the two choices you have. You can either be married and bored, or you can be single and lonely. Ain't no happiness nowhere. Well, over the next two weeks, as we continue studying through 1 Corinthians, we are going to see that Chris Rock is lying to us. That both singleness and marriage are not only valuable options, but they are beautiful options according to the scriptures. So next week, we're going to be talking about the beauty and value of singleness. So for my single friends here, I'm um, so thankful that you're here today. We're going to be talking about what it looks like to walk faithfully as a follower of Jesus as a single person next week. And today, we're going to be talking about the beauty and value of marriage. And what you're going to see is like, man... Today we're going to have to live in this tension that the culture and even the church wants to resolve. Because what happens is the culture and the church want to elevate one of these two things over and above the other. You know, where we go, marriage is better or singleness is better. But what we're going to see is that the Bible holds this intention and never resolves the tension. Because the, the, according to the Bible, it says that, man, marriage is a good and valuable gift from God. And almost the Bible gives us like this, the most beautiful, massive vision for marriage that you could possibly get. And we're going to dig into some of that today. But the Bible also, and it never resolves this tension, the Bible also holds up celibate singleness as one of the most valuable choices you could make in life, and it never resolves the tension. So over these two weeks, as we continue working through 1 Corinthians, we're going to be talking about marriage and singleness. And here's what I would say. Today is going to be heavily uh, focused on marriage, and so if you're a single person here today, I'm coming for you next week, okay? I'm I'm not not like abandoning you. Uh, And if you're married here next week, it's like just know that it's going to be all about singleness. But here's why we're doing this. Here's why we're spending a week on each as we journey through this. It's not only because both Both of these are in the book of 1 Corinthians, specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but it's because we need to learn how to love the other in the life of our church. For those of us who are married, we need to learn that our single brothers and sisters in Christ are valuable, and they are not living like a JV expression of the Christian life, but singleness is valuable according to the scriptures. And we as married people need to learn how to love our single people as we, our single brothers and sisters as we invite them into life. But if you're single, 
Here's how you can listen to the teaching today. You need to know that it's valuable for you as a brother and sister Christ to lift up the married brothers and sisters here in the life of our church so that we can bless and encourage and care for one another. So today is about marriage. So you can listen to this teaching from a couple of different angles, depending on uh, kind of what situation uh, in life you find yourself. If you're married, this is very plainly a teaching on how to build a strong, happy, flourishing, lasting marriage. That's what this is all about. And here's our conviction as we dive into this. We want a core ministry of our church to be helping you, if you are married, build a strong marriage that blesses you as a couple. And so here, from the outset, here's what I want you to hear me say. If you're here and you find yourself married and your marriage is struggling, we want to help you. We want to help you walk in faithfulness to Jesus. We want to help your marriage thrive. In fact, it's maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit different, but this morning I was uh, just sitting on my uh, porch, uh, sipping a cup of coffee, uh, reading the scriptures, praying for our time together today, and I just had this unique sense from the Spirit there are some couples in the life of our church, and I'm not talking about anybody in particular, whose marriages are struggling, and today the Holy Spirit wants to come and meet you and minister to you and say, today can be the day of change. Today can be the day of change. Where, you're, where your marriage six months from now is not how your marriage is going now. Now, if you're here and you're single, here's, here's how you can listen to this, and you desire to be married, here's how you can listen to this teaching, or you're maybe dating and you desire to be married. This is, is going to be a teaching on how to find a spouse that you can build a strong and flourishing marriage with. So kind of two different angles on how to listen to this teaching. If you're joining us for the first time, we're spending this year working slowly but surely, section by section, through the book of 1 Corinthians, and just seeing this church that was a total mess, and reading this, and going, man, what does this mean for our lives in 2023? And the big idea, we've said this every week, but the big idea of the book of 1 Corinthians is this right here, that God loves us in our mess. And so if you roll in here and you feel like a mess, if you feel like a mess because of sin, if you feel like your life has fallen apart, you need to hear me say, and this is the big idea of the, this whole book of the Bible, that God loves you in your mess. But he doesn't just love you in your mess. You need to know he also loves you too much to leave you in it. And over and over and again, week in and week out, as we open up this book of the Bible together, what we're doing is we're seeing God meet us in the messes of life and invite us to his flourishing way by grace. Now today, what we're going to find is in the church in Corinth, the marriages in the church in Corinth were a mess. And Paul's writing to address these marriages and how to do life together and live together so that the marriages flourish in the life of the church. And whenever I say mess, we're not talking about like small marriage messes. We're talking about like really, really, really big marriage messes. We're not talking about little spats that the people are having. We're talking about how some of these, some of these husbands and wives were withholding sex from one another because they were mad at each other. And Paul's going to go, not a good idea in marriage to withhold sex from each other. We, we, we see in the, in, the, in the church in Corinth, some of these marriages were extremely disunified. And ultimately, some of these marriages were on the rocks to the point that some of them were going, were going to end. And at the end of our text today, we're going to see Paul talk about the hardship and tragedy of divorce, which I'm very aware some of you have walked through and most people have been affected by. And I want you to know, right from the outset, because it's going to be a while before we get there, I want you to know that I'm going to try my best to handle that situation and that topic with a ton of tenderness and grace. But right here in 1 Corinthians 7, God is going to meet them, the people in Corinth, and meet us in the messes of our marriages and say, I love you. Like, I love your marriage. I'm for your marriage. 
And I want to invite you out of whatever mess your marriage is in, and I want to teach you how to build a strong marriage that flourishes and thrives. So here's how I'll teach this passage today. Uh, Today I want to show you out of 1 Corinthians 7 the four foundations of a strong marriage. And I hope as we get into this and just work through these four foundations and work through the passage together, I hope that this teaching is not only like theologically informative to you, but really practically helpful to you. And maybe it, it can even become a grid for you so that you can kind of evaluate how your own marriage is doing. So four foundations of a strong marriage. Foundation number one is unity. Four foundations of a strong marriage. Foundation number one is unity. To have a strong marriage, there is a mindset shift that we have to make from thinking of ourselves as two individuals that are just kind of doing life together to one unified unit, working our way through life together. From, if in the language of the scriptures that I'm going to show you here in just a second, from two-ness to oneness, or from, and we'll talk about this, from division to unity. We've got to make the shift from two-ness to oneness, from division to unity. In verse one, Paul is going to address one of the questions he was asked about in a letter he had received from the church. You'll see this in verse one here in just a second. And the question right here in verse one is in quotations. Look at this, starting in verse one, 1 Corinthians chapter seven. It says this. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, so Paul had received a letter from the church in Corinth, and they had asked him a bunch of questions, and they had made a bunch of statements and said, hey, Paul, like, what do you think about this? And this is him responding to one of those statements. Here's the statement. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So they had asked Paul essentially to give them advice. And there was this teaching floating around the church in Corinth that basically said it was more holy to not have sex. Even if you're you're married, it's actually way more holy if you practice discipline and don't have sex with your spouse. In essence, they were prudes, which we all know Christian prudes that don't like to talk about sex or think sex, think about sex or uh, probably even have sex if we're really honest, right? They're prudes. And right here in verse 2, we see Paul's response to this teaching. He is, in a sense, not high on this teaching. He doesn't like this teaching at all. Look at verse 2. He says this, but because sexual immorality is so common, remember last week he, taught, he addressed all the sexual immorality in the church in Corinth, because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Paul says, I know that there's been this teaching floating around from people that really perceive themselves as holy, that you guys should not have sex, but let me go ahead and just recommend the exact opposite. (laughs) What I would recommend, Paul says, and this is going to make some of you feel uncomfortable if you feel a little prudish, Paul basically says, you should be having sex. In fact, you should be having more sex than the amount of sex that you're having right now. Go for it. Have sex. Don't, don't withhold from one another. Have sex with your husband. Have sex with your wife. Now, Paul's mind is not just in the gutter. He's not just like, Paul doesn't just like love sex because sex, and it's like, it's good, it's fun to talk about. What's in Paul's mind right here in verse 2 is not necessarily the sex itself, but rather the unifying nature of sex that we find in the creation story and the unifying nature of sex that we find in the teaching of Jesus. 
So we start in the creation story. I want to show you this, that sex and marriage is really about union. This is what stands underneath everything in sex and marriage. So we start in the creation story in Genesis chapter 2. And one of the beautiful, I want to teach you something about the creation story that I don't think a lot of people have seen. But one of the themes in the creation story is things that are the opposite coming together and it producing beautiful union. So as you move through the creation story, you see dark and light coming together. You see land and sea coming together. You see opposite things coming together. And this crescendos in the creation story with man and woman who are opposite and different from one another coming together to be unified. Look at this in Genesis chapter 2, uh, 20, verses 23 through 25. This is the vision of marriage, the unifying vision of marriage. This is Adam talking, and the man said, this one at last, talking about the woman, Eve, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother, pay attention to the unifying language here, and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. So there's more going on here than just like romantic love. There's more going on here in the marriage covenant than like, well, we like each other and this will be fun to be married, right? They become one flesh. Now pay attention to this, both the man and his wife. There's a, there's a nod to nudity, which is also a nod to sexuality between the man and the woman. The man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. I have a friend that I was talking to uh, a few weeks ago, and he was, um, he was talking to me about how he was, he's been teaching uh, one of his sons. One of his sons is in kind of like older elementary school, and he's been teaching his son about sex. And uh, he's been explaining, you know, the ins and outs of how sex works within marriage between a man and a woman. And, you know, this, they've been going back and forth, and the son's been asking questions. And one day he was explaining, like, how sex actually happens, from what I understand from the conversation. And uh, he pauses, and he says to his son, you know, you, do, you, do you have any questions? And his son, just like the most innocent, beautiful question about sex, you guys, he goes, yeah, like, but like, how, how does that happen with clothes on? To which my friend responded, well, it doesn't. <laughs> and you imagine like the thoughts that his son was having as he was having this epiphany. Here's the point. Here's the point. Sex is the most intimate coming together of two people. It is the physical, relational, emotional unifying of two people. This is what we see about sex and marriage in the creation story. Jesus also affirms this uniting, uniting vision of sex and marriage in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Look at the teachings of Jesus right here. Jesus says, haven't you read? And he's, he's, he, he's uh, talking about Genesis 2. He's going, haven't you guys read Genesis chapter 2? And he's going to quote it to us. He replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female, the coming together of two opposites. And he, said, and he also said this, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and here's the language of Jesus, and be joined, notice the unifying language, joined to his wife, and the two will become, here it is again, one flesh. So, and Jesus reiterates this unifying vision in marriage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh but one flesh. So let's just sit with this. Jesus says that marriage is about two people becoming one. It's about unity. In the language of verse 6, they are somehow no longer two, but one. 
not relationally, but like in every sense, he uses like fleshy language there. It should function like one body that's working through life together. So what we see here is see what marriage is not. Marriage is not just a means of self-fulfillment. Where it's like, man, I think I'm going to be happier if I marry this person. and It's not just a, it's not just a means of self-fulfillment. Marriage is not just the highest version of romantic love. Marriage is not just a way of having sex and getting a tax break. <laughs> Another way to say it. Marriage is the physical, emotional, relational unifying of two people into one unit. And it's this reality that's underneath sex itself. Union, this is what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, if you're a normal couple, if you're here and you're married, and you're a normal couple, you're probably thinking, man, great theology, but we don't feel that, you know? Like, it's one thing to wax and wane about the theological reality of one flesh union, but for a lot of people, it's like, we don't feel oneness. What we really feel on a Tuesday afternoon in normal life is we feel two-ness. We feel like, we don't feel like one unified unit. We feel like two people kind of like trying to make our own way through life. And the reality is this plays out not just like in the big blow-ups of marriage and the big blow-ups of life. This plays itself out in the most mundane parts of life. It's like, you will have a fight. And I'm not just talking about this in theory. I've experienced things like this. You'll have a fight, and it'll be a fight over something so stupid. You guys ever have those if you're married? Where you look back in two hours, and you're like, why are we fighting about the dishwasher? <laughs> like, why are we fighting about who unloaded the dishwasher? Like, they're, they're, but the reality is the reason we fight about trivial things is because underneath is this massive stream of division flowing in the marriage. And it bubbles up in the most mundane parts of life. And so the question is how, that we have to ask is how do we move from unity being just a theological reality to a lived experience? Where you go, man, we're unified. How do we move from division to unity in the life of our marriage? Well, let's just think about that word division. The, the root of the word is literally division. This is where division comes from, division. It's the reality that we have two different visions in life that are going two different ways. We have division around worship and wh- what it means to worship and who we worship. We have division about what it means for us to have a flourishing life together and the vision we have for our marriage. We have a division around what it means to raise kids and how many kids we want to have and what it looks like to educate those kids. Division. And the very first foundational thing that we have to work on in the life of our marriage is unifying the vision. Go, man, we've got to work on a shared vision of all of the things that matter, matter most in life where we have a shared vision for worship, where we have a shared vision for the future and work and money and vacation and kids and disciplining our kids and educating our kids. How do we move from division to unity? A couple years ago, Allie and I uh, got away. Many of you have us beat by like decades when it comes to marriage, but he, a couple years ago, we got away and we were celebrating our 10th anniversary and we were just taking it as an opportunity to kind of like look back and celebrate uh, what God had done over the last 10 years and really kind of get on the same page. We'd had multiple kids at this point and now we've added another one in the last two years and we were going, man, what does it look like to move forward as a unit into our next decade of marriage? And, uh, and so we read this book and I, want to hi- I highly recommend this book. It's by a guy named Patrick Lencioni 
Ioni. It's called The Three Big Questions of a Frantic Family. And this book was so helpful to us because if you came into our house at 7.30 on a Tuesday morning before school starts, you would go, this is a frantic family, you know? This is wild. Three big questions for a frantic family. And the goal of this book is to bring unity in the midst of chaos, in the midst of the chaos of life. And in this book, he asks three big questions, and he says every couple has to ask these big questions to unify vision around what matters in life. Number one is what makes our family unique? And you just spend time like celebrating why God has brought you together and what makes your family unique and what you love about your family, what you love that you really want to press into. Number two is this, what is the most important priority in life right now? And he talks about how priorities in life change. It's like right now, we've got three small kids in our home. We've got a nine-month-old, a three-year-old, and a five-year-old, and our priority is kind of just like, let's help these kids survive, <laughs> you know, semi-survive. But if you're, if you're later in life and you're an empty nester, your priorities are going to change. And you've got to ask this, man, what's our vision around our priorities right now? And question number three is this, what does this mean for how we live life right now? What does this mean for how we live? We've got a foundation number one is unity. We've got to move from division to a unified vision around the things that matter most in life. Foundation number two is intimacy, is intimacy. Look back at verse one, and we'll read this, and we'll pick up uh, and study verse three. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, we talked about this, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. He anticipates an argument that they're going to ask, uh, and uh, some of the people, the, the argument they might make to this when Paul says this is, yeah, but what if we don't want to? What if I don't want to do that? He says this, a husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. What's that about? Well, I could go all like theology 201 on you and wax and wane on like what a marital duty is, but here's what he's saying. You guys need to perform the duty and have more sex. Pin drop, I love that. You gotta love the Apostle Paul. He goes, hey, I know you're having all these problems. One of the things that will solve your problems, this is in the New Testament, is if you guys would have more sex. You're like, what's up with that? But here's what Paul's saying. You guys should have sex, lots of sex, because it's good for you and it's good for your marriage. One of the things I was uh, struck by as I studied this passage, and it's all over this passage, is that one of the undergirding principles of this passage is the reality that Paul uses a couple's sex life as one of the measures of the true health of a marriage. He goes, man, if you, I think this is different for all different ages and stages of couples. Because if you want to know the true state of your marriage, look at the bedroom. What's going on in there? Now, the question we have to ask is, why does he do that? Why can he do that? Well, the reason he can do that is because sexual intimacy is downstream from all other forms of intimacy, spiritual intimacy, relational intimacy, emotional intimacy. He says, if you want a strong marriage, you have to work on intimacy incessantly. You can't just coast. So the question then that we have to ask out of this really practically is what is intimacy and how do we build it? 
What is intimacy and how do we build it? I, this, uh, this last year, I had the opportunity to, to do some personal work with a therapist named Chip Dodd. Any Chip Dodd fans in here? He wrote a book called Voice of the Heart. Okay, great. Man, really on the same page. Love it. Read, read The Voice of the Heart by Chip Dodd. Well, I started meeting with Chip Dodd. Uh, I met with him for uh, over the course of about a year. And one of the things he talked to me about all the time in our one-on-one therapy sessions was intimacy. And not only like uh, intimacy between myself and my wife, but also like just relational intimacy with other people. And he would always say this like, super cheesy thing about intimacy that I always thought, every time he said it, I always thought, that is so stupid, but I get it. You know, <laughs> that is so lame, but I get it. And you go, Corbin, here's what intimacy is. And every human being, whether you're married or not married, every human being longs for intimacy. Here's what intimacy is. He goes, it's into me you see. And he would say that. He would say that all the time. And I'd be like, lame but I get it. It's the ability. Here's what intimacy is. It's the ability to allow other people in. And some of you men, I want to talk to you because men, we're the worst at this. We need to develop our ability to allow our wives in. You wonder, why is my sex life struggling? It's because you don't let your wife in, man. Into me you see. But we also, we don't only have to develop the ability to let people in, but we have to develop, and this is really sacrificial, interest in our spouse. You have to develop the desire to see into your spouse. What's going on in his or her mind? What's going on in his or her heart? Intimacy. So how do we get it? How do we get it? How do we work toward intimacy. How do we work toward intimacy? Uh, the psychologist and researcher, Dr. John Gottman, uh, taught, he was a secular psychologist, sec- secular researcher, taught at the University of Washington for uh, a really long time, and he's probably, in the United States, studied uh, marriage more than anybody else. And after studying marriages that last, he came to a, a remarkably simple conclusion. I mean, whenever I give, this to, give, the, give you this little nugget, you're going to be like, that's it? <laughs> that's all you got? This is like clinical psychologist researcher at the University of Washington. He said, here's the key to a healthy marriage. All healthy, strong marriages that last are made up of people that move toward each other more than they move away from each other. That's it. You gotta move toward each other more than you move away from each other. And the way he talks about this is, uh, he talks about this using the language of a bid, a relational bid. And I want to teach you this. It's been really helpful for me. Uh, Allie and I have been talking about making bids toward one another, like, incessantly over the last few days, because it's really helpful language. He talks about bids. He says, a bid is any attempt by one spouse, one person to another, to connect emotionally or relationally with their spouse. This is what a bid is. So I'll give you an example, and then we gotta talk about how we respond to a bid. Uh, here's an example. Um, let's just imagine uh, it's Saturday morning, and uh, you know, you've, uh, you've already read your Bible, uh, had time in the Word, and you're sitting on, sitting on the couch, and you're scrolling your favorite version of social media, or watching you know, Iron Chef 2.0, or whatever thing you do to like veg out. And your spouse comes to you and they, and they say, hey, you know, I'll use the cheesy, uh, cheesy affection. Hey, baby, it's looking like a beautiful day outside. Saturday morning, you're vegging out. You don't want to talk right now. Hey, it's looking like a beautiful day outside. Would you want to go to the city park farmer's market with me? 
Shout out Peter and Margo if you're in the room. You want to go to the city park farmers? That's a bid. That's a bid. It's an attempt to make a relational connection with you. And there's two ways that you can respond to a bid. You can make a toward bid or an away bid. A toward bid would be this. I know this is remarkably simple, but like this is like deep research by the psychologist. And he goes, this is it. This is everything. Here's what a toward bid would be. Sure, I would love to go to the farmer's market with you. Can we leave in an hour? That's a toward bid. And a way bid would be like, I don't really want to do that. Or whatever version that you could think of of I don't really want to do that. Now, here's what his research showed. This is wild. What his research has shown is that happy couples experience five toward bids for every one away bid. So here's what he's saying. You have to move toward your spouse emotionally, relationally, physically five times more than you move away from them if you want to make a str- if you want to build a strong, healthy, happy marriage. So let's get practical with this. Let me give you three ways to, to build holistic intimacy in your marriage. Three areas you need to continually, we need to continually make bids toward our spouse. So I made this into a Venn diagram for us. You're welcome. Uh, I just think it's helpful. That's how my brain works. But there's three, there's three areas of intimacy that the, Bible, that the Bible talks about. Spiritual intimacy, emotional intimacy, and physical intimacy. And for true holistic intimacy to happen in a marriage, you have to have all three of these. You have to have these three work together. So it's like, man, this is why, and I hate to use this as the prime example, this is why if you want beautiful physical intimacy, it starts up here. It starts up here, right? So let me give you some examples of some bids in each one of these categories. Here's a a spiritual intimacy bid. Um, Hey, what has God been teaching you? I've seen you reading your Bible lately. What has God been teaching you in his word? Like, what have you been reading? I see you reading that book on how to love Jesus or whatever. Like, tell me about it. Tell me, tell me what's going on. Here's another example of a spiritual intimacy bid. Like, hey, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? And then stopping right now and just kind of like stopping in the moment and praying for one another. That would be a spiritual intimacy bid. Here's, a, here's, an example of, uh, here's an example of an emotional intimacy bid. How are you feeling today? How are you feeling today? Or, hey, I can tell that you've had a hard day and it seems like you're sad. Do you want to tell me about that? Or, hey, I can tell you, it seems like you had a hard day. It seems like you're really angry. Do you want to tell me? That's an emotional intimacy bid. Or, hey, I know you just moved through a massive project at work and I saw you work really hard on that and I know it really well and I just want you to know I'm really proud of you. That's an emotional intimacy bid. Let's talk about physical intimacy bid. Let's talk about a physical intimacy bid. Here's a physical intimacy bid. Holding hands as much as possible. I worked with a, a, a coach and counselor a few years ago uh, named Dr. Jim Cofield. And he goes, hey, he goes, hey, after 50 plus years of marriage, Corbin, can I give you the most significant marriage advice possible? Hold your wife's hand as much as you can. Hold her hand, man hold her hand. Ever since then, I'm like, I'm trying, you know. By the way, in the nine, I, I made this joke. I made, in, the, in, the, in the 9 a.m., I saw, when I made that point, I saw so many husbands go. <laughs> <laughs> I will hold my wife's hand. Here's another physical intimacy bid. It's just to like rub your spouse's back. Rub your spouse's back. Or here's the one that comes to mind most often. It's like, hey, do you want to have sex tonight? 
do you want to have sex tonight? That's a, that's a physical intimacy bid. And if you're not asking that question, something's wrong. Do you want to have sex tonight? Uh, Allie and I have done a lot of, uh, we've done a lot of premarital counseling over the years. And uh, in the premarital counseling that we've done, one, we, we, we talk about, we have a session where we talk about sex. And it's really interesting. We, we use counsel, a counselor to teach this alongside of us and, and different resources. And one of the things he says about sexual health in the life of a marriage is every couple that has a, se- a healthy sex life has the ability to talk about their sex life outside of the bedroom. It's like you just got to talk about it when things aren't like tense. And so here it is. If you want holistic intimacy, are you pursuing spiritual intimacy? Are you, are you pursuing emotional intimacy? Are you pursuing uh, physical intimacy? Foundation number two is intimacy. Foundation number three is sacrifice. Foundation number three is sacrifice. The most common vision of marriage in our cultural moment is that marriage is just a means of self-fulfillment. And that's all it is. Uh, I want to be married. Here's an example of that. I want to be married because I think that it will make me happier and a more fulfilled person, which might be the case, but it should never be the primary reason that somebody decides to get married. But Paul says this, actually a healthy marriage is the exact opposite of a means of self-fulfillment. Look at verses four, uh, four and five. It says this, a wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. So do you, do you know the one flesh union goes so deep in the life of a marriage that you go, my body is no longer mine, it's my spouse's. Wow, I belong completely to this person. So much so that Paul says this, again, he's caught on sex, do not deprive one another. So he appeals to this thing that happens in marriage that he goes, it's really wicked and destructive where if you're at odds, you'll go, well, I'm not going to have sex with you until you get X, Y, and Z worked out. And then you, you use it as a leverage tool. He goes, do not do that. Do not deprive one another. Except, I love this advice, when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Some of you are like, dang, wow. That's serious, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Guess so. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So again, he's using the example of sex within marriage, but in verse four, you see Paul is talking about how, more broadly speaking, at the core of every strong marriage is a sacrificial mindset. A mindset that says, man, my body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to my spouse. A mindset that says, I am more interested in my spouse's good than I am my own good. And sure, Paul, we've talked about this, Paul has the bedroom in mind, but this principle applies everywhere. Other-oriented sacrificial love is at the core of every single strong marriage. It has to be. Where I become concerned with how to care for and bless my spouse more than I am with how to care for and bless myself. So it's like you just think about next weekend. Especially if you're in here, and I'm I'm just saying this because, you know, it's like I'm in this season of life with kids. It's like you can think about your weekend where you think, man, how am I going to leverage my weekend so that I get my time away from the kids so I don't go insane? And Paul goes, let me just apply this really practically. How can you think the opposite? How can you think, how can I think of my next weekend so that I can leverage myself to give my spouse as much free time as they can get so that they don't go insane? Just a little example. It's like flipping the mindset 
other-oriented sacrificial love. One of my favorite parts of my job is officiating weddings. I'll officiate a wedding uh, two, two Sundays from now for the guy sitting right there in the sound booth. Congratulations, Colton. And uh, I'll officiate his wedding. And one of the things I always talk about in the little, in the little sermon part of the, part of the wedding ceremony that nobody listens to, I always talk about the importance of sacrifice. Sacrifice in the marriage. And I always, always, always bring up Philippians chapter two and say this is the key to a healthy marriage that lasts. Where Paul says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition. He's writing on relationships in the church, but this applies in marriage. He goes, man, if you want a strong marriage, do nothing out of selfish ambition. My goodness, that brings so much, so much um, on me that I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a totally different way of how, how I'm wired to think. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others, even the closest other, your spouse, as more important than yourselves. Everyone, pay attention to his language. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And then he talks about why we do this. We do this because this is how Jesus Christ has loved us. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Paul says, if you want a healthy marriage, you have to increasingly become obsessed with looking out for the interests of your spouse more than you are looking out for your own interests. Sacrifice. So let me give you three questions uh, that a servant would ask, just kind of a little evaluation tool, and then we'll move on to foundation four. Number one, what have I done in the past week to bless or serve my spouse? Just think, like, how am I doing at this? What have I done in the past week to bless or serve my spouse? Question number two is, am I self-centered or spouse-centered in my decision-making? When I think about my weekend or my evening, am I being self-centered or spouse-centered in my decision-making? And number three, how can I serve my spouse this week? It's like, let's just get really practical. How can I serve my spouse this week? Foundation number three, sacrifice. Foundation number four, commitment. Commitment, this is the final foundation. Verses 10 through 16 are Paul's instructions on how to approach the extreme difficulties that come with marriage. And the reality is, for all of us that are married or all of us that desire marriage and become married, that there will be seasons of life marked by extreme difficulty. And in this final section, he gives us a couple of examples of how to endure, on how to endure extreme difficulty within a marriage. Look, starting in verse 10, I'll read through the text and then I will do my best to quickly explain it. He says this, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And he quotes Jesus here, a wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, and he's going to give some personal advice here as an apostle, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. Go to the next slide here. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife. Wow. There's some really strong language about the sanctifying effect of following Jesus if you find yourself in this kind of marriage. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Wow. 
So he's not saying here, I want to bring clarity, he's not saying here that the believing spouse saves the unbelieving spouse. But he is saying that a believing spouse can have a sanctifying effect on the marriage and the home. In fact, they should. Where because you're following Jesus in that home, your home is better. It's flourishing. And he says that might lead to the salvation of your spouse. But ultimately right here, he's talking about all kinds of different scenarios that we might find ourselves in. And the theme among all the complicated situations that a marriage might find, himself in, find itself in, the theme is commitment. Commitment, commitment. You read these verses and Paul's essentially saying, stay, stay if you can. Are you fighting? Stay committed. Are you in a disagreement? Stay committed. Do you have a spouse who doesn't love Jesus? That's okay, stay committed. Love them. But this conversation and this text of scripture brings up the sensitive question of divorce. And for so many, I know so many of you, you've endured the pain of divorce and have been affected by divorce. So how do we think about it biblically? How do we think about it biblically? What if we didn't stay committed? What now? Or what if our spouse didn't stay committed to us? Well, right here, I wanna make a couple of pastoral comments on marriage and divorce, and I wanna do this with a lot of tenderness and grace. First, we see this. The vision of the scriptures is that marriage is to be a lifelong one flesh union of two people. This is Jesus in Mark 10, verse seven. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. And then he says this. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And this one flesh union explains the pain of divorce so well. If marriage is a one flesh union, if it's literally, physically, relationally, emotionally, the binding of two people together, not just like a civil agreement, not just like a friendship, there's something more going on. If God is joining something together in a marriage, then divorce is best understood not as a relational change, but as an amputation. Culturally speaking, we believe that marriage is a means of self-fulfillment, so if we end a marriage, it's just like cutting a friend off. But Jesus teaches us it's so much more. It's a one flesh union. This is why if it ends, it's so emotionally and relationally painful. Because it's not just the ending of a relationship. It's the severing of a divine bond. It's an amputation. And it's for this reason that if you've tragically gone through a divorce, you will likely spend the rest of your life walking with a limp. But second, we have to see that according to the scriptures, sometimes an amputation is necessary to save a life. Sometimes it's necessary to save a life. And in the scriptures, we get three qualifications for divorce, for a divorce to take place. And many people call them the three A's. I'll give them to you and then I'll show you them in the scriptures. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Jesus says this in Matthew 19, 9. He gives the concession of adultery. He says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, divorces his wife, except, so he gives an exception clause, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. He says, if your spouse commits adultery on you, you are free. The second two categories are abandonment and abuse. Abuse is to never be tolerated and is actually a form of abandonment. And we have to talk about this with so much nuance. We see this in our passage today. 1 Corinthians seven fifteen says this. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave, or her leave. A brother or sister, he's saying a Christian, 
a brother or sister is not bound in such cases, God has called you to live in peace. And so let me speak to two groups. First, to those of you who have been divorced. My word to you is freedom and grace. Freedom and grace. I wanna be transparent. I've never been divorced and I don't understand, I can't understand the pain and ramifications and the emotional weight that you carry. But maybe today, right there looking at the three A's, maybe today helped you identify that the reasons behind your divorce are in line with God's word and you needed that freedom from heaven to go, yeah, it happened, and I'm free according to the scriptures. Receive the freedom. But maybe you're here and you realize that according to the Bible, your divorce was a mistake, and it was motivated by the self-fulfillment ethic or just sinful selfishness, and you find yourself asking, like, what do I do now? What do I do now? Am I condemned? Is this the scarlet letter in the church that will hang around my neck forever? The answer is no. What we say is the past is the past. Wrongful divorce and even adultery is not the unforgivable sin and we move forward in the grace and freedom that Jesus bought for us on the cross believing that your core identity is not defined as a person who's experienced divorce and this is not the end of your story. Grace and freedom. Grace and freedom. But second to the married. If you're here and you find yourself married and especially if you find yourself in a contentious point in your marriage, my word to you is fight. With everything you have and everything you are, fight for the health of your marriage. Fight for joy in your marriage. Fight for unity in your marriage. Fight to sacrifice for your spouse. Fight for intimacy. Fight. But a lot of people, they start to ask, man, is this the person that I was supposed to marry? I don't know if I can love this person anymore. Was it right for me to marry this person? Stanley Hauerwas helpfully says this, and we'll land the plane here. He says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone, pay attention to this language, the assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact, I love this, that we always marry the wrong person. He goes on to say this, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a a while and he or she will change. Some of you are like, yep. For marriage being the enormous thing it is means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. I say this in the in the weddings that I officiate, I say, today you marry each other because you love each other. Tomorrow you will love each other because you are married. This is a covenant of love. It doesn't go up and down with how we feel. And so fight for your marriage. To those of you who uh, are single and desire marriage, here's what I would say. We fight for unity. We look for unity. We look for sacrifice. We look for intimacy, and we look for commitment, and we're looking for a kind of person that can give that kind of life to us. But even more than looking for that kind of person, what I would say to you is this is also a kind of person you become by following Jesus, a person who's a unifier, a person who 
lets other people in and pursues with other people with interest, intimacy. A person that sacrifices for other people, this is the kind of person you become. And a person who's marked by commitment. But to our married people, I would say this. I'd say, where do you need to work? Where do you need to work? Is it unity? Do you have a division in your marriage? Is it sacrifice? Are you kind of waking up and going, man, I've been really selfish. I need to apologize to my spouse on the way home. Where do you need to work? Is it intimacy? Is it that we haven't had good date nights and conversation, emotional, physical intimacy? We need to talk about it. We need to work on it. Maybe you need some help with that. Where do we need to work? But ultimately, we see that marriage is about the gospel of Jesus. And it's about the gospel of Jesus in two ways. First, it's a picture of how we have been loved by Jesus Christ. You see, we, all human beings, were created for unity and intimacy with God, our creator. But we've broken that bond. This is biblical language. We've cheated on God. We've gone and loved other things and other people more than God. But the gospel is that God was so committed to his bride, the church, that he came to rescue her. And how did he rescue her? He rescued her through sacrifice. This is the cross. And marriage is a picture. Every single marriage is a picture of the way God loves us in Jesus Christ. He's committed. He's sacrificial. He's unifying. It's beautiful. But we also see in this that marriage is not an end in and of itself. It's a pointer to a greater end, and that is the marriage of Jesus Christ to his bride, the church. And so there's a day coming where all of our marriages will end. Like where for eternity we will be single. Jesus teaches that. Some of you, a bomb just dropped on you. You're like, what? I'll show you. If you want me to show you, I'll show you. Because your marriage, the fulfillment of your marriage, is the greater marriage, the wedding supper of the Lamb, where Jesus comes and marries his bride. Love that. But also, we see that the gospel is actually the power to have a healthy marriage. That you can only become this kind of person who's a unifier, sacrificial, loving, pursuing intimacy when you have experienced that kind of love from heaven. The gospel is the power of a healthy and strong marriage. Where each spouse is individually pursuing Jesus, being changed by him, experiencing him, and therefore can love one another sacrificially. This is the goal, to build a strong, healthy marriage. Let me pray for us, and then Jonathan's gonna talk to us about how to respond. Jesus, we, we love you. We thank you for the gift of really practical passages of scripture that help us know what it looks like to have a strong marriage, beautiful marriage, flourishing marriage. Now we pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit and bring these things to fruition in our lives. And I want to pray for two things. Number one, I want to pray a blessing over every marriage represented in the life of our church. That they would be marked by unity and intimacy and sacrifice and commitment. That we would pursue health and strength. But I also pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here who, whose marriages are struggling. That Holy Spirit, you would come and you minister to them. And that today would be a day of change. That six months from now, they'd be able to say, man, we've changed. Our marriage is stronger than it was six months ago. I pray today would be a day of change. So come, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Apply the scriptures to our hearts and our heads and our hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.